Hello, welcome everybody to another edition of Truth to Power here on Forward Radio. We're your community radio station broadcasting out of the top of the Hayburn building at 106.5 FM. We also live stream to the world at forwardradio.org, and we want you to go there to become a part of this community radio station. It's radio for the people, by the people. We're not controlled by corporate interests. You don't hear advertising on this station. And uh, we, hey, it's just people-powered radio, and that means uh, we need you, the people, to get involved. So go to forwardradio.org. If you click on participate, you could pitch us an idea for a show. It could be a, a new weekly program like this or a one-time access Hour. You don't need to know anything about radio or the technology. We'll help you out with all of that. Get your voices on the air, whatever whatever issues you're passionate about. Or, or you could be a guest on a, a program like this. Uh, and we also rely entirely on your listener contributions to keep us on the air. Thanks to everybody who chipped in during Give for Good Louisville back on mid-September. What a great day of fundraising that was. We raised over $4,000 beyond our goal for the station. That's keeping us on the air for uh, 200 days or more. So that's great. Uh, and and we need those funds to keep coming in. So if you missed out on, on Give for Good Louisville, you can go to forwardradio.org now. Click on Donate and uh, give us a one-time gift. Or maybe you become a sustainer, maybe five bucks a month or something like that. Uh, you could really help the station out uh, and become a part of it today at forwardradio.org. Well, my name is Justin Mogg. Joining me in the virtual studio today is Hart Hagen. Welcome, Hart. Uh, hi, Justin. How are you today? I'm good. It's nice to see you, man. Um, we are here for another book club of the air, uh, an intimate one with just Hart and I. We always open this up to uh, other forward radio programmers and community members are welcome to join us. Uh, the book we're going to talk about today, we're going to revisit the title because uh, uh, it's the 10th anniversary already, which is what really blows me away. I can't believe time has flown by so fast of a wonderful book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. If you haven't had a chance to, to read this text, well, the 10th anniversary might be a fantastic excuse to do so, because I think it really helps contextualize a lot of the issues that are tearing our society apart right now. Um, it doesn't go into pandemics, but it goes into a, a pandemic of racism that's really plagued our nation since its founding and shows how that racism is sort of baked in to the, to the nation. Um, I'm always hopeful and, and think that that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be baked out of the system, but um, it's definitely right. it, it definitely needs to be pulled out by the roots. That's what uh, this work, uh, I think, shows us, that we can't just sort of uh, prune around racism, right? We've really got to rip it out by the roots because uh, uh, we've heard these, these ideas about a school-to-prison pipeline, about modern-day slavery, uh, as, as, as Michelle Alexander called. It, it's the new Jim Crow of our era, right? Uh, and and it's hard to really understand, get a grasp on what that means. I mean, the right will, of course, say, well, it's because people are, deserve to be imprisoned, they're lazy, or they're doing drugs, or something like that. But it's actually a systemic uh, structural racism problem that's getting folks into trouble who wouldn't even encounter the criminal justice system otherwise. Hart, do you have uh, any uh, uh, any uh, excerpts of the text that you want to kick this conversation off with? Absolutely. And I, I heard, I saw this as a meme and decide for yourself if, it, if it's true, but I heard it said that racism is so American that when you criticize racism, people think you're criticizing America. <laughs> 
love it. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, racism is so deeply embedded. Yes, I think that's what the yeah. white supremacists and the Proud Boys are, are saying, right? Like, uh, how dare you criticize this racist country we love? Right. <laughs> you know, I, I've been criticized of being anti-American. Imagine that. Uh, and uh, so I, I like saying, you know, if I were in Germany in 1930s and 40s, if I criticized Hitler, if I hated Hitler, do I hate Germany? <laughs> right, right. There's good and bad in this nation, and and I think it's it, it's incumbent upon all Americans in a you know in a democracy to constantly be criticizing, right? Right. Uh, Jefferson said that dissent is the highest form of patriotism. Dissent is the highest form of patriotism. I love it. Yeah, and we're seeing that dissent in the streets right now. And it comes in all forms and degrees of radicalism, right? Um, some people just want justice for, say, Breonna Taylor. So, you know, lock up her killers. You know, that's one one small thing. But if we do that, it's not going to really, that's going to be pruning at the problem of racism when we need to pull it out by its roots. And, th and so more radical folks are going to say, you know, get rid of policing altogether, defund policing. Uh, other people somewhere in the middle will say, well, we can still have some police, but they're way overfunded and, and we should be using that money to fund social support systems, right? Um, so, Right. So, you know, we have militarized police. And when you're equipped, like when you're equipped like an army, you're going to go out there and treat your imagined adversary as, uh, you know, you're going to think it's a war. If you're all geared up for war, then you're going to go out there and you're going to make war on people. That's right. That's right. You kind of get the uh, get the America you build, <laughs> right? So uh, you asked me about uh, the. Do I have quotes from the book? Let me start off with a couple of things that are kind great. of an introduction to the book, or at least you know talk up this book. So Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow is the secular Bible. This is according to Cornell West, who we've talked about on this show. Michelle Alexander. Sanders, the new Jim Crow is the secular Bible for a new social movement in the early 21st century hmm. America. Uh, it's, uh, uh, now, this is Michelle Alexander writing in her introduction. She says, this book, which some predicted would never get an audience, wound up spending 246 weeks on the new, how many years is that? <laughs> almost, almost five years. Wow. 246 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Really? And has been widely used by faith groups, activists, educators, and people directly impacted by mass incarceration inside and outside prisons because prison does, doesn't just affect those who are incarcerated. It affects the families and communities of those who are incarcerated. So says, over the past 10 years, I've received thousands of letters and tens of thousands of emails from people in all walks of life who have written to share how the book changed them or how they have used it to support consciousness raising or activism in countless ways. Everything, as of 10 years after the book, she says, everything has changed and yet nothing has. So no. there's so, she said that if you wanted to, if you, rather than revise this book, she did write a new introduction to it, but instead of giving an updated version of this book, it, it, it was so, there's so much to say about what has changed and mm. what is the same that it would take a whole other book. So she 
she decided to keep it as it is. She changed a few, a little bit of the terminology, like, uh, you know, per, I forget exactly, but some of the terminology she, she changed to show respect and sensitivity to people who are being categorized by this or that term. But uh, the, the, the book was published in 2010. President Obama had just been elected recently mm-hmm. and many people almost everybody wanted to think the mainstream of america wanted to think that we're in a post racial era mm. we were now we have achieved we have a president who's african american surely we can say that we've achieved the colorblindness so this book did not start off strong it, it, it landed like a lead balloon, so to speak, at first. <laughs> and it wasn't until Obama had been in office two or three or four years that people were saying, okay, maybe, there, maybe nothing significant has changed with respect to uh, mass incarceration, with respect to people of color and how they are treated in the uh, justice system. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, a, a nice thing that um, we've seen uh, since the publication of the book is, is a lot of faith-based communities have taken on this this issue as well and made it part of their sermons and organizing uh, and, and fighting for, uh, you know, living the true way, uh, whatever the faith community may be. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, you can learn more about the book uh, at newjimcrow.com. And I'm looking there at just some of the, you know, study and organizing guides that uh, have been produced as a result of the book. And uh, you can see uh, there's there's specifically a, uh, a faith-based study guide for the new Jim Crow to help facilitate study groups and consciousness raising amongst black faith communities, obviously. Uh, but the Unitarian Universalist Association selected it in, but way back in 2012 as their common read and, and produced a study guide. Uh, so, I mean, people are making this part of, of their uh, modern missionary work, whatever you want to call it, right? Like uh, thinking about how we, we live uh, in a way that reflects our values uh, and, and starting to treat all people as human and equal. And that means rooting out these structural forms of racism, uh, which which go back even to the, t- the days of Obama, right? Like nobody, nobody really tr- th- truly thinks that Obama was ever going to come in and solve everything. But the, I think there was a sense. I remember that time, 2008, 2009, that the fact that we'd finally elected a black president really meant something about how far our nation had come from the days of slavery. And when, when it, racism was so in your face that it was a part of everyday life and economy, and and I think what we've seen in the time since then is that, oh, wait, um, there was a lot more that we needed to do than simply elect a black president. Uh, and and it, it's 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 ingrained at every level of the criminal justice system uh, and, and beyond. It's it's so frustrating to me that even once a, a, a felon uh, who's more likely to be targeted because they're because of their color of their skin anyway, more likely to be, you know, stopped and frisked or have their car pulled over. Uh, then once that happens, they're more likely to get arrested. Right. Then once they're in prison, they're less likely to be able to get out on bail. Uh, they're more likely to be stuck there and they're more likely to be convicted 
addicted, more likely to have longer uh, sentences, uh, less likely to get out early, uh, you know, early release. Um, This is because of driving while black. Because of driving while black. This is because of possession of marijuana, a substance that's safer than tobacco or alcohol. Uh, It's sometimes because of dealing minor amounts of drugs. And it's, you know, Chris Hedges says that 96% of people who end up in prison never had a trial. Wow. So how can you have a trial if you don't have, how can you have a fair trial guaranteed <laughs> by the constitution if you don't have a trial? And there are all kinds of ways to manipulate people into pleading guilty because the people who say, no, I'm innocent, I'm gonna to go to trial, they end up with you know double or triple the sentence that they would have if they had just pled guilty. Yeah, that oh, <laughs> it's like they're tricking you into prison, and that, and and that's why they call it the you know school to prison pipeline, uh, putting police officers in schools where there's crime, right? Which is a, sort of a, a code word for black and brown communities, right? Uh, so we got to police them more. Those kids, uh, we know they don't do well on tests, so therefore they must be you know troublemakers when it's actually we're underfunding their schools to begin with because of racism in how we budget right mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. We're, we're willing to we're willing to uh, spend money on cops for those schools <laughs> or metal detectors at the doors or what what all kinds of security measures that you wouldn't get out in a white school but we're yeah. not willing to spend the money on uh, microscopes and books and teachers and uh, arts uh, supplies and, mu- and musical instruments and everything that makes uh, schools r- enriching for for kids and makes them want to pay attention, want to do well, want to stay engaged. Uh, and, and cops are uh, in charge of situations for which they're not trained. Like police officers have to deal with mental illness. Uh, I was at a, a protest here in the Highlands once, not too long ago. It was around about the time that Iran, or there's war, talk about war with Iran. And, and I was, uh, it was a Saturday morning, and I was at Heine Brothers on the corner of Bargetown Road and Douglas Loop. And, and, and then from across the street, I heard this shouting and yelling. And this police officer was yelling at the top of his lungs. Wow. Uh, at at a at a homeless veteran wow uh, who had a either a shopping cart or had just minimal you know stuff to carry and I ended up talking to the veteran for quite a while in Honey Brothers and you know he was you know not, he was not quite all there he, you know, he had some mental illness issues but he sure. was not dangerous in any way and while and I felt like you know I ended up go, crossing the street to where this guy was just this cop was just yelling at the top of his lungs at a homeless veteran and I felt like saying what is going on in your life that they, you feel that this is the best way to deal with this situation right. shouting at the top of your lungs at somebody who is not harming anybody and obviously, you know, if you're that 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 veteran, for one thing, needed a home. <laughs> if another thing needed a, 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 a social worker. And I think it's been shown that the cheapest way to deal that it's a lot cheaper to provide homes than it is to deal with the effects of homelessness. So we're putting all this money into policing. But not, you know, when that money could be so easily redirected into things that actually solve the problems the police have to deal with or perceived problems people have to 
people, place have to deal with. No, I think that's a really good point, Hart. Have you heard about this um, program in, in Eugene, Oregon, that's been operating for a while called Cahoots? No, I haven't. Oh, my gosh. This is a really interesting alternative form of policing. So Cahoots... Uh, stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. That's great. And it's a fourth arm of the emergency response system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so you know, usually you have, you, when you call 911, they're going to route your call to either the fire, right, fire department, the EMS, if you've got a medical issue, or the police. But there's all kinds of other reasons people call 911. You were just talking about the mental health issue. So in Eugene, Oregon, integrated into the 911 system is cahoots. And if the if the call is clearly about an issue like that, where what they need is someone who knows about mental health, if they need a social worker, they can. There's a there's someone who you can call, and they will route from the 911 call a cahoots social worker to come out to see the scene. Now they're integrated into the emergency network, so if they get there and there's weapons or fire or someone really does have a medical need, then they can get in touch with those other uh, branches. Um, so I, I found a four minute piece from NPR. You want to? Yeah, please. Why don't I give please. it a little play and we can learn more about cahoots? Okay. A little interview. Right. Here we go. You call 911, you generally get the police. It's a one-size-fits-all solution to a broad spectrum of problems, from homelessness to mental illness to addiction. Protesters are urging cities to redirect some of their police budget to groups that specialize in treating those kinds of problems. Now, we're going to look at one model that's been around for more than 30 years. In Eugene, Oregon, a program called CAHOOTS is a collaboration between local police and a community service called the White Bird Clinic. Ben Brubaker is the clinic coordinator, and Ebony Morgan is a crisis worker. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, we're glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. So, Ben, if I'm in Eugene and I call 911, um, when does that call get routed to your team instead of to the police? The calls that come into the police on emergency number and or through the 911 system, if they have a strong behavioral health component, um, if they are calls that do not seem to require law enforcement because they don't involve a legal issue or some kind of extreme threat of violence um, or risk to the person, the individual or others, then they will route those to our team uh, comprised of a medic and a crisis worker that can go out and respond um, to the call, assess the situation, assist the individual if possible, um, and then help get that individual to a higher level of care or a necessary service um, if that's what's really needed. And you get about 20% of the calls to 911, is that right? Yeah, it's probably a little bit higher than that. We respond a lot of days, kind of back-to-back calls. Hmm. So, Ebony, when you show up on the scene, are you carrying any of the paraphernalia that a police officer would have? Do you have a, a uniform, handcuffs, a weapon? So we are a lot more casual in appearance. <laughs> okay. Um, the tools that I carry are my training. I carry my de-escalation training, my crisis training. And, and a knowledge of our local resources and how to appropriately apply them. I don't have any weapons, um, and I've never found that I needed them. How often do you have to escalate? I mean, how <laughs> often is your training just not enough to handle the problem? So last year, out of a total of about 24,000 calls, 150 times we called for police backup for some reason. So wow. not very often. Can you give us an example of when you do need to call on the police? If we believe that someone is in danger, especially, um, or is an immediate threat to others, 
for an example, if somebody is insisting on walking into traffic, I can't in ethically just allow them to get hit by a car, but I also cannot restrain them. That is not my job. So mm. that might be an instance where I need to call. Ben, give us some numbers. How much does the program cost and, and what measures do you have of its success? Well, I would say that uh, right now the program costs, uh, with all of the combined programs, both in Eugene and Springfield, uh, around $2.1 million a year. To put that in perspective, the Eugene Police Department's annual budget is about $70 million and Springfield's is about $20 million. Um, we estimate uh, that we save over $15 million a year in cost savings, both through our ER diversion, uh, through picking up calls that would otherwise have to be handled by law enforcement or EMS, it could be a more expensive response, um, and through um, uh, jail diversion. Ebony, has your work in this program changed your view of police and law enforcement? Um, I came into this work passionate about being part of an alternative to police response because my father died during a police encounter. So it matters to me very much. I'm so sorry. Um, Thank you. Um, I'm not alone in that. So I'm really passionate about this. I think policing may have a place within this system, but I also think that it's overutilized as an immediate response because it just comes with a risk. And it's a risk that crisis response teams that are unarmed don't come with. Um, You know, in 30 years, we've never had a serious injury or a death that our team was responsible for. And I think that's important to note. I also um, recognize that my experiences are not isolated. Um, And so I try to acknowledge where I believe there is room for improvement. And I think that models like this can help people have support in their community and feel safer within their community. Ebony Morgan and Ben Brubaker of the Cahoots program in Eugene, Oregon. Thank you both for talking with us. And you're still listening to Forward Radio, Community Radio. That was a little clip from our friends at NPR. Many thanks to them for that great interview uh, about Cahoots. I mean, w- this is your first year hearing about it, Hart. What's what's your reaction? Man, they they really, I was predisposed to believe that this is a good idea. And for one thing, <laughs> we show up without weapons. That's one thing. Uh, and if another thing, in 30 years, there has never been a serious injury. Yeah. We saved the police department $15 million uh, a year, we estimate. Uh, 150, I, I didn't get the, the denominator of that, but 150 out of something like 1,200 yeah, I didn't catch uh, it either, but a lot of calls, right? You can imagine. Yeah, right. The, the, uh, it's just something called ER diversion, where instead of just picking somebody up in an EMS and taking them to the ER, well, maybe you don't need to go to the ER. Right. If you have a social worker who she shows up with what? No weapons. She shows up with her de-escalation de- techniques <laughs> and, and with a knowledge of community resources that can help that person. Imagine if those were the tools in that emergency vehicle that appeared when people called 911. Yeah, sometimes to... I think, I mean, I'm sure cops get some training in de-escalation, but how much training do they get in de-escalation versus the amount of time they spend shooting at a pretend guy, you know, center mass, dead center, learn how to shoot the center of somebody's, learn how to shoot somebody in the heart, you know, you know, take them down. How much do they learn that aggressive problem solving techniques versus 
uh, um, I don't know, the alternative, uh, the escalation. A, a lot of cops probably come from a military background or uh, either directly or their family. So, so they're exposed to that training, which is all about dehumanizing, right? You can't, you can't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can't run a military without training people to not see the enemy as a non-human, right? Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's That's kind of built in. part of their training, dehumanization. It, it, yeah, it's built into the DNA of the operation, and that's why I support uh, this d- idea of getting rid of police or defunding, radically defunding police. Um, but we do need emergency responders. And right. so I think that the idea of, of cahoots is just brilliant. Like, let's be serious about hiring some social workers to be emergency responders to handle these many types of issues that could be, you know, family, domestic uh, concerns, noise concerns like there's so many reasons you don't need a law enforcement officer with a weapon to show up for every call we just we have not built into our cities or our emergency response systems any decent alternative and that's all part of the new Jim Crow which is what we're talking about today here on Truth to Power with me Justin Mogg and Hart Hagen here on Forward Radio we gather every week at this time for a community conversation about different hot topics and given the protests on the streets and the injustice that still stands for Breonna Taylor and and so many other people of color who've been victimized by the criminal justice system. I mean, you can extend this to immigrants, right? And the whole, uh, the ICE, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, which is now no longer just on, you know, guarding our borders, but in cities, knocking down doors in the middle of the night. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about a specific example uh, she started, there's chapter three, I believe, is called The Color of Justice. And she starts off with two stories that stem from the very same fact situation where it was somewhere in Texas and uh, a, like 15% of the town was, was uh, incarcerated or was arrested because of something that ended up not being very credible. But anyway, uh, here's quoting from the book. It says, imagine you are Irma Faye Stewart, a 30-year-old single African-American mother of two who was arrested as part of a drug sweep in Mm. Hearn, Texas. All but one of the people arrested were African-American. You are innocent. After a week in jail, you have no one to care for your two small children and are eager to get home. Your court-appointed attorney urges you to plead guilty to a drug distribution charge, saying the prosecutor has offered probation. You refuse, steadfastly proclaiming your innocence. Finally, after almost a month in jail, you decide to plead guilty so you can return home to your children. Wow. Unwilling to risk a trial and years of imprisonment, you are sentenced to 10 years probation and ordered to pay $1,000 in fines, as well as court and pro. So keep in mind, this person is innocent. She has spent time in jail. She's ordered (laughs) to pay $1,000 in fines, as well as court and probation costs. You are now branded a drug felon. You are no longer eligible for food stamps. You may be discriminated against in employment. You cannot vote for at least 12 years, and you are about to be evicted from public housing. Once homeless, your children will be taken from you and put in foster care. 
a judge eventually dismisses all cases against the defendants who did not plead guilty. At trial, the judge finds that the entire sweep was based on the testimony of a single informant who lied to the prosecution. You, however, are still branded a drug felon, homeless and desperate to regain custody of your children. Mm. Yeah, and those when they make you pay a fine and you're already poor, I mean... <laughs> Or bail, it's, it's it's just it, of course this is That's an what Shamika Parish, you know the the you know cash bail is what Shamika Parish Wright is uh, is fighting because you get you, you get picked up for nothing at all you get put in jail when you're in jail you lose your job if you can't afford the uh, you know, you stay in jail if you can't afford bail you get out you have a criminal record even though you did little or nothing. It's it's an endless cycle, and it's clearly a war on the poor, uh, and so it's illegal to be poor in America. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we just made sure people didn't fall into poverty in the first place by universal basic income, yeah, Medicare for all, right? Like the public free public education, all the things that we know are essential for keeping people out of poverty, uh, we're not willing to do. Uh, but we're certainly willing to lock people up and, and build more prisons. And, I, you know, I was reflecting on the, just the vast expansion of the prison population. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, it feels like the only reason this could possibly be the state in America is that we make it profitable to run prisons. We've privatized this industry. It, this is not true in other countries, right? Like, how, how could it possibly be that you can make money off of keeping people in cages? Like, it's bad enough you can make money uh, causing climate change, right? <laughs> Extracting fossil fuels. We certainly make that profitable. But now you can make money off of putting people in cages. If taxpayers had to pay to lock these people up, uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't think we'd uh, we'd be quite as eager to, you know, raise our taxes in order to just put everybody we don't like in jail. Well, I think we do pay for the prisons, you know. I, I suppose, yeah, I suppose we do. And then we make people rich. So it's another way of, uh, you know, funneling money upward. <laughs> right. And plus, it's not only the, the uh, like, Corrections Corporation of America is one of the big uh, prison, private prison companies. And so you have not only capital interests like that, but you have unions of prison guards lobbying for tough sentences, you know, economically they're on the wrong side uh anyway right we build so, and we build these it, prisons in places where people are desperate for jobs because they're been, desperate for jobs partly because of nafta their jobs have been shipped overseas through no fault of their own you know now workers it's bad for workers in other countries and and if you know if you want to exploit it helps to for people to be sick tired broke desperate uh, economically compromised so you know and then they so you like indiana for example parts of rural indiana the general motors is not there anymore the general motors plant went away but the prison moved in and that's where people get jobs as prison guards who might otherwise be working for a manufacturer 
like, and also Caterpillar is in Indiana. So Caterpillar is always threatening to uh, ship jobs overseas, and sometimes they make good on that. In fact, some one of the reasons they, uh, they have plants overseas, one of the reasons car companies and manufacturers have plants overseas is the threat of being able to just all of a sudden shift operations to somewhere else. To, to depress wages, make people negotiate for to give up benefits, lower wages, et cetera. No doubt. So, I mean, we've we've tied this whole issue of mass incarceration to, to somehow being a job creator. And, and <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> uh, well, it's the people. Well, let, let me go into, you know, some let me go into some of the stats, because there's this impression that more people of color are in prison because more people of color commit crimes. But let's deal. So let's deal with this. Um, Michelle Alexander writes. Although a majority, although the majority of drug users and dealers nationwide are white, three-fourths of all people imprisoned for drug offenses have been black or Latino. There are significant differences in the surveys to be found. They frequently suggest they frequently suggest that whites, particularly white youth, are more likely to engage in illegal drug dealing than people of color. So white youth are more likely to deal with drugs and drug dealing than people of color. <laughs> uh, one study uh, published in 2000 by the National Institute on Drug Abuse reported that white students use cocaine at seven times the rate of black students. This is, this is students, so it's not the general population, but mm. if you just look at students, uh, white students use cocaine at seven times the rate of black students, uh, use crack cocaine at eight times the rate of black students who would have thought um, the national household survey on drug abuse reported in 2000 that white youth aged 12 to 17 are more than a third more likely to have sold illegal drugs than african-american wow. youth and yet overwhelmingly the prison populations are african-american and latino yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you look at those stats, it's just and and that's the, you know, the fundamental basis. If you read the New Jim Crow, you'll see all these stats. It's just overwhelmingly obvious what's going on here, uh, even if it's not written down somewhere that we are going to go out and imprison all the people of color. Uh, and yet if it bleeds, it leads. You know, <laughs> uh, if you want to tune into the news and you'll see something, uh, you know, you'll see sirens outside, you'll, you'll see flashing lights, EMS, caution tapes and in a in a minority neighborhood. Yeah. That's what that that's what gets plastered on the news. Or we stoke fear and we say, oh, the black people are protesting for Black Lives Matter or, or whoever they are. Uh, they must be violent people coming to, to riot and loot. And so we better shut down our whole city, uh, board up the businesses, uh, put extra cops on overtime. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane what what the response to um, a vast majority of peaceful protesters uh, who just simply want 
justice from this highly unjust system who are who are simply calling out doing the american thing of of protesting uh and using their first amendment rights to point shine a light on the injustice that has been baked into our system and the response is just more of the same even more policing uh even more of these racist assumptions about the people who are demanding justice uh, it, it, it's it's you don't have to look far to see this. It's right here in Louisville for sure. So, but I have this Facebook friend who this is a person I, I never was her like a close friend, but we met once. So I know who this person is, and this is an upper middle class white woman who is uh, fairly well educated, and she's posting these pro Trump uh, uh, messages. And she's usually posting what other people are, are writing. But, I mean, she posts stuff like, you know, <laughs> Trump supporters aren't the people that are burning our country down, you know. <laughs> like, who, who, how does she get the idea that, that somebody's burning our country down? I mean, who, who are these people that are burning our country down? Another post said, uh, you know, I've never seen a country so determined to get rid of a president instead of arresting drug dealers. And so, okay, what drug dealers are we talking about? Are we talking about the you know these nonviolent offenders who get put in prison without a trial, or are we talking about the banks that launder the money of uh, the drug cartels? Let's talk about the chemical companies whose whose product is necessary for processing cocaine, and we know they're doing it. We can even trace the chemicals back to the company. We know that these chemical companies are involved in dealing drugs. So what drug dealers are you talking about? Oh, let's talk about the CIA who, was letting, who let, lets drugs go, you know, caused the crack epidemic in Los Angeles, starting in Los Angeles and then other places. No doubt drug, the CIA and DEA are turning their heads the other way while drugs are flown into, you know, Texas, Miami, where, what have you. What drug dealers are you talking about? Uh, Iran-Contra affair. I think that yeah, might have been right, under exactly. a Republican administration. <laughs> right. Of course, Reagan was had the war on drugs, so he must be against drugs, you know. Did, I was going to ask you about that. You've studied history a little more than I have. Uh, it, when did our America's war on drugs begin? Was it was it in the Nixon era? Yeah, Nixon drugs, and then Reagan uh, redeclared the war on drugs. Yeah, yeah but I mean, it it's it's always been tied to racism. It's always been tied as a way to like those people who want civil rights. We've got to figure out a way yeah. to uh, right. keep them down, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so this is a, this is a long long part of American history, and I and I'm sure it's going to take us a long time to claw our way out of it. And there's a lot there's a lot that we have to dismantle. I don't know. Do you ever see like? Uh, the smartest place to start with all of this, Hart, um, can, can you see a way forward or, or do we have to fix it all at once? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I can only see one angle. Uh, I mean, I can only see, I only have my limited perspective and, you know, I would love to hear what Shamika Parrish Wright and yeah. Attica Scott have to say about this uh, and, uh, you know, any number of people. But I, I, to me, I mean, I was conservative for most of my life, and then I was moderate for a few years. 
Uh, but then only within about the last two and a half years have I come around to a more progressive perspective, if you will. And to me, all I had to do, pretty much, I had to be shown the facts. And also, I kind of came at it from an environmentalist perspective. So I learned how urgent it is for us to deal with the extinction crisis. And then I learned how urgent it is for us to deal with the climate crisis. Yeah. And these are all things that are caused by just out of control capital. You know, let capital make all the decisions. It's a, it's a, like a, a free market free for all. Whatever makes money uh, is what is what makes the decision. So capital is making all the decisions for our government. So we know that there's money in politics. We know that, you know, our politics is drenched with money. We have the best politicians money can buy. And, and, and we know that public policy and public opinion are two different things. Public opinion wants Medicare for all. Public policy uh, doesn't, uh, the, such as it is. Public opinion wants war to be a last resort. That public policy is is a different thing. So to me, it's about what we're doing now. This is why I do this. But what we're doing now is we're sharing what we know with people. But because you know, we talked about this being a non-commercial station. This station is not bought out by commercial interests. If it were, we wouldn't be able to say all this oh, yeah. because at some level, Corrections Corporation of America would be you know, <laughs> paying our bills or scratching the back of whoever is paying our bills. So to me, I mean, it's, it's glib and cliche to say the key is education. But I really think that, that if enough people knew the truth, then it would be a different world and public policy would be different. Yeah. Yeah. And if you tune into the mainstream media uh, right now, or, get, or if you're getting your news from even social media now, what you're going to see, it's just a torrent of political ads, which just feeds this whole money is power narrative when in truth, it's a democracy and it's one person, one vote, uh, and corporations don't get to vote. And we really get to decide who we put in power. But if we're if we're tuning in to that corporate media, then guess what we're going to get? We're going to get more corporate supported advertising and, and whoever the corporations want in power is who, the messaging we're going to see. And that's why things like community radio are so vital to pay attention to and to participate in and to help sustain uh, without your contributions at forwardradio.org. We, yeah, like Hart said, we could not be having this conversation with, with you and the community today and you wouldn't hear the kinds of perspectives that you get here on community radio otherwise so uh, let's slam the corporate media again for just another minute so so uh, you know matt taibbi is a really good reporter for rolling stone uh it just does great reporting he's one of the i really trust him and like him he's one of my top 10 reporters that i really like uh and uh, so he wrote a book called Hate Inc. In other words, huh. Hate Incorporated. So he talks about how back when cable TV became a big thing. Well, going back to the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you, if you have ABC, CBS, NBC, you have Walter Cronkite speaking to America. Yeah. And Walter Cronkite is designed to appeal to the broadest possible possible swath of people. So you're kind of, it had its faults and it was deeply flawed, but at least you were speaking to one group of people in the middle. Then cable came along and the Fox News uh, people decided to 
capture the conserv the neglected conservative audience uh, for their own. And that conservative audience of Fox News became a tribe for what we call conservative. And then, not too long after that, MSNBC came along and it became the tribe of people who identify as Democrats. So you have, and Matt Taibbi called his book Hate Inc., Hate Incorporated, because on the cover, he has Sean Hannity of Fox News <laughs> and Rachel Maddow of MSNBC, <laughs> kind of opposite sides of the same coin. And uh, so what he's saying is, right or wrong, what he's saying is that these corporations are making money off of hate. Mm. Fox News has its type of hate. And, you know, it's hard to imagine our cuddly liberals being hate hateful, but there is a condescend, there's a tribe that is condescending. And the conservatives hate being taught manners by the by anyway, I'm I'm getting too far into the weeds there, but you have you you have tribalism for profit. Yeah, yeah. You're listening right, to. How did I get started on that? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good one. You're listening to Truth to Power here on your community radio station, Forward Radio, WFMP LP, Louisville at 106.5 FM and forwardradio.org. My name is Justin Mogg. Hart Hagen and I are having a conversation about the new Jim Crow today, and and we 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 got down an interesting road about you know uh, community controlled media, and uh, this is an important week for that. I want to highlight a couple of things about October 9th, Hart. First of all, October 9th. This Friday is the start of the Grassroots Radio Conference. It's it's an annual conference of folks who are interested in this kind of radio that you're listening to. Uh, and, and this year it's gone virtual, uh, and so it's a lot easier to participate. But it's actually being hosted by our local sister station, Art FM, WXOX. Uh, and and I'd encourage people to check it out. You can learn more at virtualgrc.org, virtual grassroots radio conference, virtualgrc.org. Uh, and, and you can register for just one of the three days or, or all three of them. If you register by October 6th, you get an early bird registration discount. We're going to be talking about issues such as the pandemic, how to broadcast safely and responsibly, uh, the protests, how to amplify justice and equality for all, the president, how, how to energize the electorate through the FM dial, and hyper-local news reporting during things like wildfires and other disasters striking our nation. And that's uh, Friday through Sunday this week, October 9th. 9th to 11th, 11 a.m. Uh, to 6.15 p.m., even with some evening events. Uh, and you can learn more at virtualgrc.org. But what's the other thing about October 9th, Hart? <laughs> it's the last day to request a mail-in ballot in Kentucky. So we want you to vote, and we want you to vote early. You can go to uh, online to uh, govoteky.com. To, no matter where you are in Kentucky, you'll find links there to request your mail-in ballot. Uh, the deadline, again, is this coming Friday, October 9th at 11.59 p.m. Uh, and, of course, they're going to be doing uh, early voting as well, open to anyone. You don't need a special excuse. You don't need to register in advance. Uh, and that starts on October 13th. And uh, just this last week, they announced uh, where that will be happening here in Jefferson County. There's actually four different places you can go to vote 
early and on election day. Uh, it off. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we want you to vote once, but we want your vote to count. Uh, make sure you, you get in and vote. Uh, and there's four different places you can vote. You can vote at the, the Expo Center, uh, at the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage on uh, at 17th and Muhammad Ali, downtown at the KFC Yum Center in the foyer at Main and 2nd, and out east at the Louisville Marriott East. Uh, and that's Monday through Saturday, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And then uh, Election Day on November 3rd, all four of those locations will be open from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And God bless them. They even have free parking at all four of those locations. Must be Louisville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yes, please make sure to vote, folks, uh, and be an informed voter. You know, I just downloaded my uh, sample ballot, and there were all kinds of things on there I was not expecting because the only thing anyone's talking about is maybe the Mitch McConnell race and probably the presidential race. But, hey, there are other things on your ballot, uh, the you know state house races, uh, soil and water conservation district. Right. But there are also two constitutional amendments on there, which I had no idea until I heard our brand new program on Forward Radio. Just last night, I heard the program We and You uh, talking about uh, the constitutional amendment. Uh, that's on the ballot. And so th- you're not going to learn about these things in mainstream media. you, you got to have community media to learn about these and get these kinds of perspectives and to truly be an informed voter. So do your research uh, and check it out. And, 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 and that's all part of dismantling the new Jim Crow is, is having more democratic participation. And can I get to an issue that um, I, I was starting down this road when I started talking about at the beginning, when I started t- talking about how there's this you know, black folks are more likely to be end up in the criminal justice system because of all these steps along the way. But even once they get out of prison, we deny them the right to vote. This is insane to me. I don't know where these laws came from in the first place. I mean, it's obvious they're racist laws. Now that you look, you know, you can look at it with a 2020 hindsight of history and see how statistically it turns out that this is a way to disenfranchise majority uh, people of color or just poor people and people who end up in the criminal justice system. What? The whole they call it the rehabilitation system, right? It's the Department of Corrections. We're supposed to be rehabilitating and correcting these people. (laughs) If if we actually believed that in the least, we would not prevent them from voting once they serve their time. Oh yeah, I mean, like like the criminal element is going to take over if you let them vote. You know, (laughs) they might they might vote for another criminal. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that never happens. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I just so I've heard that there are you know, there's so many people that are not allowed to vote because of a criminal record that that is enough to change many of our the outcomes of many of our elections. So there's a certain logic yes. <laughs> in not letting people vote. And we can see how scared the Republicans in Florida are right now. That, like you said earlier, like if you look at what t- people actually demand, it's not the Republican agenda. So it was on the ballot in, in Florida. Do we want to restore voting rights for former felons? And overwhelmingly, that passed when you put it to a public vote, right? Yes, people want former felons to be able to vote. And now the Republicans are doing everything they can through lawsuits uh, with these. Now that the you know federal courts have been packed by McConnell with conservatives, uh, every lawyer is on their team 
team is is doing whatever tricks they can to try and make sure that uh, those folks aren't actually able to vote for for one reason or another. Uh, it's just disgusting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What so else what are we going to do about that? Oh man. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, where do we begin? <laughs> well, we've got 10 more minutes uh, to talk about the new Jim Crow heart. Uh, is there anything else that was, was burning on your radar you wanted to touch on? Oh, there's a lot. I could go another hour, but I, I'm not <laughs> sure if, if you're up for that. <laughs> so, okay, here's another quote. Now, this is, this is uh, crime as a class issue. This is, do the real criminals actually go to jail if you you know i've heard it said that there's more crime in the suites than in the streets so this point this speaks to that uh she says while some banks were eventually this is like okay after 2008 this is writing in her new introduction to the book but says while uh, while some banks were eventually prosecuted and agreed to pay fines that were a small fraction of their profits The individuals who committed these crimes, in in other words, the people, the crimes that led, we know that crimes led to the 2008 downturn, uh, that bank fraud uh, was was a part of that, that criminal actions led to that downturn. And statistically, you can correlate between an economic downturn and people dying. So this is not just, oh, we're going to pull in our oars and we're going to be a little bit poorer for a while. And not to derail you, but just to real, real quickly point out, it's a, it's a classic blame the victim thing with the 2008 Mm -hmm. crisis too, because people will say, Oh, that was caused by all these poor people who are going out and getting mortgages that they really shouldn't have. Right. Like it's their fault that (laughs) these criminal (laughs) mortgage backed securities were going on. Come on. If you want to know what happened, watch The Big Short. Oh, that's a great I mean, film. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So you saw it. It absolutely one of my favorite. Very entertaining. Oh, yeah. And it's like, remember those guys that were kind of <laughs> had great tans and they were yep. just laughing at the fact that they had uh, people that couldn't read English sign these mortgage forms, you know. So uh, speaking to that, it says... Uh, while some banks were eventually prosecuted and agreed to pay fines that were a small fraction of their right. profits, the individuals who committed these crimes were typically spared. Despite engaging in forms of criminality that destroyed the lives and wealth of millions, they were not rounded up, dragged away in handcuffs, placed in cages, and then stripped of their basic civil and human rights or shipped to another country. Their mugshots never appeared on the evening news and they never had to wave goodbye to their children in a courtroom unable to give them a final embrace. This is crime as a class issue. Poor people go to jail for crimes. Poor people go to jail even though they never committed crimes. Rich people who who commit crimes typically don't go to jail except in very rare cases. When they hire the wrong lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. And that's their mistake. (laughs) Serves you right if you didn't hire the right lawyer. No, that's so true. Uh, Yeah, this is... we and we have we're not even talking about war crimes. You know, why is George W. Bush free? He's a war criminal. 
Every president, you know, there's this video, it's like a five, seven minute video where Noam Chomsky is, it names every president from Truman up to whoever the president <laughs> was at the time. It might've been the Obama year. I mean, not hard, you could, every, not hard to, I personally, you don't have to be Noam Chomsky, I personally could name the war crimes for every president as since 1945. They all commit war crimes. And they they give the orders, you know. They give the, the Bush lied us into the the Iraq War. Colin Powell, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and many many more lied us into the Iraq War. Yeah, and they never seem to end up in jail. Uh, you know, even after they get out of the presidency, but certainly while they're president, we we can't possibly uh, charge them with any crimes. That <laughs> that would be a bad precedent. Be bad if you're Obama and you charge George W. Bush with crimes. <laughs> then uh, Trump gets in office, he charges Obama with crimes. So you better mind your manners. You better you know toe the line on the honorable tradition of not charging war criminals with war crimes. Oh, my. Mm. Yes. Uh, We're here to cheer you up. We, <laughs> that's what we do here on Truth of Power. It's all about, uh, yeah, bubbles and rainbows here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's the 10th anniversary of the new Jim Crow. Michelle Alexander is the author. We never mentioned her. She's a highly acclaimed civil rights lawyer, advocate, legal scholar. And, of course, author. Over the years, she's taught at a number of universities, Stanford Law School uh, in, in, being one of them. Uh, and she uh, won a Soros Justice Fellowship in 2005 that supported the writing of the new Jim Crow. Uh, and uh, prior to joining academia, she was engaged in civil rights litigation in both private and nonprofit sector, ultimately serving as the director of the Racial Justice Project for the ACLU of Northern California. So uh, just an incredible uh, let me give you scholar. another quote. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so we saw earlier how, uh, you know, white people are at least as likely to, to commit drug crimes as black people. Uh, and so, but in light of that fact, listen to this. Human Rights Watch reported in 2000 that in seven states, African-Americans constitute 80 to 90% of all those sent to prison wow. on drug charges. In at least 15 states, blacks are admitted to prison on drug charges at a rate from 20 to 57 times greater than that of white men. And this might seem too good to be true, but she's got footnotes. <laughs> Everyone has a footnote to it. So, so read New Jim Crow, and it's got footnotes. Now, continuing to read, in fact, nationwide, the rate of incarceration for African-Americans convicted of drug offenses dwarfs the rate of whites. Nationwide. That's what we're talking about here on Truth to Power, and we're all out of time, I'm afraid. It's been a, a pleasure, again, diving into this text and, and thinking about what it means for a way forward today. Uh, it's been a pleasure hosting this. My name is Justin Mogg. I'm host of Sustainability Now, and I encourage you to tune into that show. I'm doing a series of interviews with returned Peace Corps volunteers uh, who've served all over the world uh, in all kinds of different capacities. Uh, what about you, Hart? Uh, what's coming up on the Climate Report, and let's talk anything special well we're going to be talking again soon about uh, the fbi versus martin luther king 
Uh, we're going to be talking again on this show uh, soon uh, about the book Switch. I will be talking to a woman named Kathleen Halal of Non-Toxic Communities. And wow. uh, tomorrow at 4 o'clock, well, uh, when mind. it airs, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a bit too soon. But um, so also, uh, this land is something we'll be talking about periodically. This land, uh, how cowboys, capitalism, and corruption are ruining the American West by Christopher Ketchum. It's a phenomenal wow. book. I'm talking about that with Jake Bush. Check it out every day on this station at 7 p.m. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and we'll be back in your ears again in one week's time. Be well. Good night. Thank you.